Welcome to The Working Capitalists. Welcome to The Working Capitalist and our series of conversations with working capital professionals. Hi, uh, my name is Brian Shanahan. I'm the founder of both Informata and TermsCheck.com. Today's guest is Hamiar Wicks from EDNF Man. Hamiar, please tell people a little bit about yourself and what you do. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, I'm Hamiar Wicks, and uh, I'm a group controller at uh, EDNF Man. Uh, prior to that, I've been uh, in a similar position with a, a shipping and logistics company called Stolt Nielsen and worked in the steel industry. I have a range of experiences across different countries. Uh, from metals mining to logistics to commodities trading um, and uh, and various other industries when I was an advisor with KPMG and our friends. You know, one of the questions I always ask, Amir, is that when we talk about working capital, you know, it would be great if there was a, a particular qualification we could all get and then we'd all have the same level of knowledge about it. Uh, and my experience is that people evolve into this depending on what their specific experiences have been in their career. Uh, just wondering, what, what's been your evolution on this subject? As I said, I started as a, a training for my chartered accountancy and as a part of that process. And then as a professional with uh, KPMG and Arthur Anderson, I did a lot of due diligence work on companies for acquisitions or sales and disposals. And as a part of that, we always looked at the working capital cycle. So you went in as an advisor, looked at the working capital cycle, evaluated that working capital cycle in terms of its impact on the closing uh, mechanism of the transaction. So how much working capital is required on an ongoing basis, how much will be there at completion, and how much cash is required to fund that working capital. So that was the sort of the journey where I started. Then I moved into actually looking at working capital on a regular basis with when I when I joined uh, Mittal Steel in the steel business, uh, where you had different challenges with working capital. So uh, you had all sorts of things with raw material inventories, finished product inventories, where they sat, what happened to them and what stage of transition they went through. Uh, so very, very working capital heavy, heavy industrial business. Uh, that journey then moved on to uh, to, to, to Stolt-Nielsen, where there were four very different businesses, uh, each having very different working capital cycles, like the main shipping businesses would have a negative working capital cycle where you collected main freight before the goods were actually shipped. Um, and then you had tank containers and uh, the terminals and the the sea farm business, which had a different working capital cycle. So when you looked at working capital as a group, you could get to very different answers and and how that was funded and how the cash was moved around to fund the different uh, phases of working capital for each of the different businesses. So with the with the commodities business, it's uh, it's very different again because we've got uh, businesses which are quite different. They, you can lump them as commodities, but at the core, they're quite different businesses. Uh, one is about sugar trading, which requires different kinds of working capital or the timing of that, uh, coffee and liquid products. The phasing of the working capital throughout the year can be different. It's driven a lot by the seasonal uh, seasonality of uh, of harvest, of storing those inventories before it goes off to the, to the final consumer. From my understanding, working capital, you know, from uh, just as an auditor, then as an advisor in acquisitions, then on to looking at it and managing it from a lender covenant perspective, which is what we do now, it has been quite a, I've seen it from very, many different perspectives. So um, it, it it's hard to say whether I've learned everything that has to be learned. I probably never have, as much as you, Brian. But uh, 
I, I do feel that I've seen it from many different in many different ways to have some insight into it. Well, Hamir, I can guarantee you that the learning never finishes. You know? <laughs> uh, but uh, but one of the things that, that that's quite interesting, um, I find, is that it's one thing, you know, when you have personally a lot of different experiences of different types of companies and so on. And, and in effect, for most companies, uh, no matter what they do, it's a kind of a, it's a blend of different different things, depending on what operations you have. But very often I find that then when you talk about external people, I'm thinking about people like investors, banks, stuff like that, they, they tend to uh, be a lot more simplistic about how they view your working capital situation rather than looking at it from a more operational view. Is that your experience? You could not have put it better, uh, Brian, because I, I think people tend to look at working capital more as a static uh, sort of uh, uh, is more static in nature when actually it's a flow rather than a, than a fund of sorts. Because what tends to happen is most of the bankers, lenders, and and uh, and when you're an advisor, you tend to look at working capital at a point in time when it is much more uh, dynamic than that. So while you can look at it at a point in time and tick a box on a covenant requirement, saying you'll maintain X amount of working capital, uh, what you're really missing is from the operational element of it, that working capital can swing significantly intra-month, intra-testing dates, uh, intra-negotiations with lenders. So where you start and where you end up could be very different depending on the nature of the business, particularly if you're driven a lot by seasonality. And, and the, the other problem I always see with working capital is that, that even when you look at this from a finance angle and you have all the right measures and systems and data and all that good stuff, yeah, then trying to translate uh, that into actions in the operational business uh, can be a huge problem because if those people who generally are not finance trained, yeah, uh, don't necessarily understand the subject in the same way, and very often can just see this as being a hindrance to what they're trying to do day to day. Yes, completely. Because what they don't understand is the underlying linkage which that working capital has to say a financing requirement or the ability to anticipate our financing requirements. So sometimes what is viewed very simplistically at the operational level has huge uh, consequences further up the uh, up the food chain, whether it's trying to make sure we have sufficient working capital uh, funding across that period, or it could be as simple as meeting a particular covenant on a testing date, uh, a covenant testing date. So those 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 kind of challenges, uh, I can't think of any company that's got it right in some ways, but I think better and more frequent communication across the operational pieces from finance. Uh, would would definitely go a long way in terms of helping people understand the implications on on why working capital is so important. Yeah, and I, I I personally think that this is a this is a, a problem uh, all over to different extents, obviously. Um, but it it always reminds me that you know when you're bringing up your children, you know you you try to teach them that whatever they do has consequences. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and, and and this for me is exactly the same. And and you know you know probably you know you and me could talk you know finance stuff and all uh, all day and we'd understand each other. But when we're talking to the non-finance community, the challenge can be actually translating what it is that you need to deliver in, in terms of those financial targets into operational measures that these people can take and understand themselves. Indeed. Yeah, uh, and uh, and and this is always the challenge that that uh, you know people just you know it, it it comes out as kind of it feels like gobbledygook to them. You know? uh, yes. And, and because it's you know it's very difficult for people to take action on stuff that they don't understand properly. In, uh, absolutely, and 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 that's why I feel sometimes I think I, I would hold my hand up. The finance doesn't do a great job either of communicating 
to the operational people what the impact really is. What does it mean to you in the day in the life of from a working capital point of view? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and we can always do a better job of it. And we, we, we try, at least where I am at the moment, we do make a big attempt at the operational level to get people aware of how this is going to affect them. But I imagine the other challenge in all this is even even when everybody has the best intentions, you know, quite frankly, there's only so many hours in the day. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know about you, but my experience of m- many different places is that everyone is always under some kind of resource pressure. So, so you know, you're all the time having to prioritize all the different things that you need to do, not just you, but all the, all the other people in the business, too. Uh, so, so finding the time to do those communications can be really, really difficult. Yeah. Yes, yes, and and also the the communication needs to be uh, in a in a way which is easily understandable by the non-finance folk because I think that's where the message gets lost. You, you send it in a way which is really not how the operational folk likes to to actually listen to that. Now, switching subjects just a little bit. I mean, here we are in early 2021. And uh, I would imagine, I don't know from your perspective, but uh, it's uh, been uh, the oddest 12 months probably I've ever experienced. Um, just wondering, what, what's that been like for you and your colleagues You know, in a global organization where I'm sure there's potentially several different circumstances depending on where you are in the world? I think for us, uh, we lost a few colleagues to the disease. So that was, that was oh. quite, a, it brought it home quite closely to us in Italy, in Latin America, uh, and in the United States. So that brought home how how deadly this disease is. So that was, as an organization, quite quite something to take. Uh, you know, it was not just an item of news, but something which affected us very, very uh, dearly. But for me, it has been a really, uh, like you said, absolutely strange. I know the word unprecedented has been used a lot, exactly like that, but I joined the company in lockdown. I did not meet anybody other than my bosses before I... Uh, before, uh, at the interview stage, I didn't meet them for the first six months. So for me, starting entirely remotely, entirely away from my team, was 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 new. Starting a new job without meeting anyone is is, is a bit strange. Having calls on Teams and and uh, video calls on uh, w- w- was different for me. But I think the biggest challenge is how we managed to get everything done without having to meet face to face was also equally incredible we we got we got a significant amount of financing uh, just over 2 billion done entirely remotely without one flight being taken without one hotel stay nothing and and what was remarkable also was that you could get all of that done without spending a lot of money which sometimes and and, and coping with jet lag notwithstanding uh, without having to deal with that so I think from my point of view, that was probably the biggest difference, which uh, which I felt was that two years back, if you told me, could we do, could we raise so much money with 100 different lenders across the world? I would have said, mm, that doesn't sound right. Uh, but we have done it and it, it, it and, and we are not the only company. There are a lot of other companies which are able to do that. Yeah, I know. I, I, I certainly chime in with that experience because in the work I do, uh, normally I'm traveling all over the place. And, uh, and of course, we can't do that at the moment, so there's not really a choice. Um, but, but what it does mean is that uh, in, for, for me personally, lots of things that I do on a day-to-day basis are much more efficient. So, you know, I can start off in the morning and I'm speaking to someone in Kuala Lumpur, yeah, and I end the day speaking to someone in Arizona, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I never went anywhere. And we all had quality communications and so on. I think there's certain things we, where, where the, 
the the whole Zoom Teams thing doesn't work very well. Uh, but uh, but for me, you know, particularly like group situations, um, mm -hmm. uh, that that becomes more difficult. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, you know, like the conference circuit, for instance, you know, uh, lots of people are trying to do virtual stuff, which at best, at very best, is difficult. You know. Yes. Um, and it's not their fault that all those people are trying very, very hard uh, under difficult circumstances. But uh, but I imagine, uh, you know, one of the things that possibly may change is, is uh, you know, the old fashioned mentality that, you know, whoever your boss is likes to see you in the office every day. Um, yeah. Now, a lot of people have been forced into this uh, this regime where that can't happen and therefore maybe. Uh, I'd like to hear what you think about this. Uh, we'll get used to this kind of new regime, or do you think it'll just switch back to what it was before? I actually think it, it won't switch back to the way it was. And, it, and of course, you can always be blame it on the tyranny of the present. But if I look at where our business is heading at the moment, we are looking at having a much smaller footprint in terms of office space in London. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I look at a lot of other companies and colleagues in other companies, they are doing exactly the same. The whole idea is earlier it used to be very um, very essential for somebody to be in the office, let's say. And, and that, that is there in a lot of companies still. Uh, and of course, they are, they're, they're, they, you can't be in the office, but you still have to achieve the objectives of the business. You still have to run the business. So people have got around to it. And I don't think it'll go back to where it was. In fact, I probably see it just like you mentioned just now, probably meeting people at conferences where you have to travel, where you can get that one-on-one -on -one interaction. Uh, you probably meet people in groups to say once a year, I would go out to New Orleans or you know wherever the business requires in Winterthur or so on. It would not be the kind of travel I used to take before, where you know every three months, uh, you know I had a long trip in Asia, then every alternate month I was in the U.S. Those those are going to go away. Those are now going to go away. They're going to be more focused. Uh, most of it will be done remotely. Um, and I don't see business travel as a result coming back very quickly uh, from from uh, you know going forward. I, I think it is it has fundamentally changed the way we will work uh, for a long time. Uh, I mean, who would have thought taking off your shoes, uh, putting all your liquids in a in a transparent bag uh, before you and 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 being patted down every time you go through a security scanner would be normal in air travel before 9-11. I know that's a pretty uh, that's drastic right. example. Uh, you know, you could just whiz through last minute, you just run through the, the the security lines. Now we see that as pretty normal. So I think this will become the new normal. One year is enough for people to change habits and change the way they think and work. It, it's interesting you say that because I remember post 9-11 with the whole travel situation, which, I mean, it stopped. Anyone who didn't need to travel just stopped. Yeah, mm -hmm. But... It didn't last, uh, and I think the main reason for that is now we do have tools like Teams and Zoom and yes. whatever else, uh, and you know all our mobile communications are much cheaper these days and so on. So, so we actually have the tools now to do this. Where you know back two thousand one, we didn't really have the tools, or, or they were in a very undeveloped state, yeah, at best. Uh, um, and I think everyone got in, the, in those days. It was the conference call, yeah, and. Mm -hmm. uh, Trying to remember all the digits on the codes, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> which was uh, which was somewhat of a challenge if you weren't used to it. But uh, I mean, I, but I, 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 this is just my opinion, you know, that you know, you've mentioned, you know, the whole bu about business travel, but also, you know, the cost of office space. 
uh, you know, it sounds to me, you know, uh, that, you know, there's a general trend going on where many companies going into this year and, and years beyond, they, they like the idea that they're not spending this money in these categories uh, and, and, and in many cases have no intention of going back to it. So, you know, one of the things that always kind of sticks in my mind is that, that then is, is that going to be one of the drivers that, that, you know, does actually change things? Or is it more the kind of cultural stuff that, you know, we've all gotten used to uh, using all these tools rather than doing the face-to-face thing? Well, I, I think it'll be a bit of both. Uh, I think from a cultural standpoint and from a practical standpoint, the younger younger generation who don't have access to, maybe they're doing a flat share, maybe they're stuck in a pretty small apartment somewhere, will find the need to sort of come into the office, maybe not every day, but a couple of times a week. And uh, some of the other people will start coming in a couple of times a week as well. But I think what you will find is people will reduce their requirement for office space going forward. Some of the most expensive real estate in the world is empty for a year nearly. Uh, And when you reflect on that, and you reflect on the fact that the business was largely unaffected without that office space, it brings home how much value do you attach to that office space? Then it becomes just a place for people to meet. I think... I think the office space conundrum will solve the housing conundrum, I feel, at least in places like London, where housing is ridiculously expensive. Um, so, so it might be that um, the office space could be repurposed for people actually living in the central living areas. Could it's, be a solution. It's funny you say that, Hamir. I was, uh, I was told a story quite a few months ago, uh, and this was a London-based treasury department, and they just hired a young lady who is from Dublin, yeah, and it's mm-hmm. part plan she was going to move to London yeah but of course in the middle of all this the lockdown happens so she couldn't move yeah mm-hmm. so she's in Dublin they're all in London but of course they're on lockdown as well and actually uh, as part of the, the 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 whole lockdown piece they've all learned to work remotely and as a result of it she's still in Dublin with no plans to move anywhere <laughs> so yes, that... in a strange way it's kind of worked out a little bit better in some ways yeah yeah I think what what needs to really catch up is the is the tax regulation because you're going to start hitting uh, b- people who are employed by a particular legal entity in a particular country when mm-hmm. they li- leave that country live outside their tax residency could change depending on the amount of time they've spent away you know so suddenly you could become a resident in a particular country just because you've you've gone back there for example and those things can 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 have a big driver on people's incomes and their ability to work abroad. But it's quite interesting that when you say about tax, because you know most tax regimes depend on this whole idea of domicile. You know that we are mm-hmm. physically in a place doing something. Yeah. You know? yes. um, and of course, increasingly, uh, more and more of us uh, don't do that. You know? I, I, yeah. I'm actually I'm I'm a, I'm a bad case in this respect because I've been doing this. For <laughs> And quite frankly, all, all my various tax advisors always get terribly confused about, so where is it that you work? Yeah. Um, yeah There's one minute I'm at home and the next time I could be somewhere completely different anywhere on the planet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is, I think this is going to become more people's problem. Yeah. As a result. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure a lot of these people who are taking these, uh, these, uh, what, what do they call them? Working vacations where they kind of take their laptop to Tenerife or something like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
which which is very pleasant weather-wise and a nice place to go. But uh, then they find that they've got some strange tax inquiries, uh, you know, months on. <laughs> These are the potentially unexpected things that can happen. But listen, uh, you know, I mean, w- one of the things that, that um, yeah, we, we've t- touched a number of points, but do you think there's any other points from a finance perspective that, that you know, we know things have changed this year because we've been forced to, but things that, that are going to you think are going to stick permanently rather than go back to the old norm. I think I think what is going to stick permanently is some element of or strong elements of remote work. Um, I think those elements are going to be they they, they will stick. Uh, lack of business travel that probably will continue. There's a fair bit of research to show that business travel doesn't come back as quickly as you expect it to be. And now the technology, like you said, Brian, the technology now is so good. You can you can do an effective call and a conversation one on one or with a small group of people to run projects and to do stuff. So I think that is going to continue. I think what is not going to continue, what is going to come back once the once the pandemic is over, is things like the conference businesses, the essential business travel where you have to see people uh, to negotiate to 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 close transactions. I think some of that will come back. Some of the office interactions will come back because. You can do everything online, uh, but some things could have been easily resolved if all four people were sitting around a table looking at the same screen, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So those things will come back. Uh, I think, for example, in my during my uh, year end, um, it would have been just easier if four of us uh, in the team who were running the accounts could, could sit around a screen and make the changes we had to rather than having to work on a shared drive document, which, which is possible and which was good. But it it wasn't as efficient as we would like it to be. No, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing um, I, I, I think that the last year has brought up is the whole subject around mental health in the workplace, because uh, and, and I'd say largely most of us were kind of fairly unaware of this before because, you know, people move from the home to the work environment and things kind of can get, how do you say, shielded. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. where, whereas now for lots of people, uh, you know, there, there does seem to be kind of like, you know, 50 percent of people love working from home and there's the other 50 percent hate it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. With no particular logical reason why one should like it or, or, or not. But uh, for me, the, and I see this from many people I speak to, you know, the, the, these are issues which have now become have become higher on the agenda uh, and, and and with more remote working will probably stay higher on the agenda, I think, in the coming in the coming years. I agree with that, Brian. But I, but I do feel that mental health was also a neglected subject when people were physically in the office. Mm-hmm. I think it has become mental well-being has become an important aspect. But I think the remote working has thrown it into uh, real limelight in, in a sense for organizations because you are sort of blurring those lines between home and work because you are at home and you're working kind of thing. So that those lines have been blurred. Therefore. It has got the emphasis and the attention it deserves, but I think it it deserved it a lot earlier because I think mental health issues have been largely neglected if I look at it over the last five, seven years when people were working in physically in the office. So I think that is a good outcome uh, or good thing that the that organizations are looking at this uh, closely because I think I think that has suffered over the years people that that was one aspect which uh, which never was considered if. As much as it has now. Okay, Halmir. Listen, thank you very much for those insights. We've run out of time. Yep. Thank you very much for inviting me, Brian. And um, it was a real pleasure talking to you. 
Thank you for joining us in our series of conversations with working capital professionals. Look for us next time on The Working Capitalist. You have been listening to The Working Capitalists.